Hello, and welcome to this podcast from the University of Bath Centre for Death and Society. Today, I'm joined by Kate Woodthorpe and Hannah Rumble, whose work focuses on the future of funerals. I started by asking Kate to describe the group's latest research on funeral choices and grief. We did a study over two and a half years that was a mixed methods and um, in terms of it had a quantitative element with questionnaires and a a qualitative element with interviews and we had uh, responses from over 200 people for the questionnaires and we interviewed 30 people um, and we were looking at how how do their choices about a cremation um, how do they relate to their experience of grief in the first one to two years after someone has died so we wanted to find out whether their um, how they were feeling in in the over time uh was had bore any relationship with what they had chosen to do after someone died in that immediate window so we spoke to we the questionnaires went to people who'd been bereaved or organized a funeral within the last three months so they were you know very recent and then the interview and then they had a one questionnaire and then a questionnaire a year later to see what changed and then uh, the qualitative team did the interviews around, it was around the first anniversary, um, about why they did what they did. Our findings from the qualitative part of the study were really uh, enlightening in that they, we found that there were all sorts of reasons why people chose to not have a funeral service at the time of the cremation. And they were particularly to do with um, compromises to do with control and to do with consistency with beliefs and values. Hannah, to give this research some context, perhaps you could explain what a direct cremation is. Direct cremation is when a cremation takes place without a funeral service um, on the same day as the cremation. So what's really happening here is that the commemoration activities that a family might arrange um, for the deceased are separate from the actual disposal of their body. So in a direct cremation, there is no gathering at the crematorium on the day of a cremation, but afterwards, is there any involvement from the family? A significant number of the people we interviewed who had chosen direct cremation or, you know, had organised one, had then, when they got a phone call from the funeral director that they had organised it through, went to collect the ashes in person. Some people, um, a, a smaller number, receive them through the post and other people just don't collect them at all. But actually, the non-collection of ashes is um, is quite usual in also traditional funerals. One of the kind of sort of, sort of the purest idea of direct cremation is that the body is taken away and you don't know where it goes. It you don't know when it's cremated and, and the ashes are returned or, or or not. And how exactly are direct cremations arranged? If, if I'm um, responsible for organising a funeral and I and and um, I and my family or the deceased wanted a direct cremation, you could just Google direct cremation and you'll see there are a number of companies that that's what they do. And you could call them up and liaise directly with them. Or you go to a funeral director's and you say, I'd like a direct cremation and the funeral directors will then organise that for you. 
I'm wondering why someone would choose to arrange a direct cremation rather than a more traditional funeral. I'm sure you both have much to say on this. Let me start with Hannah. Even though for the interviews, uh, we only conducted 30 in-depth interviews with people, which may be to someone who's more familiar with doing big uh, data science might think that's a really small number of interviews. They were incredibly rich and very diverse circumstances um, surrounding each death. But broadly, I would say that there were three different camps for the people who had who had organised a direct cremation. And one of those groups was around the people where the deceased had made an explicit wish to want to actually leave their body to medical science. But that hadn't been able to be honoured after they died. So it just meant that the family had always expected that they wouldn't have a funeral with a body. So for that cohort, direct cremation um, seemed the next obvious answer because it's just a service to dispose um, hygienically of someone's body and it doesn't involve having to organise a funeral if you don't want to. So they knew the, 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 what the deceased wanted because they'd been organised and they'd had to leave paperwork in advance, but they'd had to make a compromise because of the inability to carry out that promise of um, leaving their body to medical research. And then I think the group that I found um, most fascinating and partly because it's personal because um, because of circumstances in my own family is the, uh, the group that Kate and I called control. And I think this uh, affects a growing number of us in, in the British population because of our experiences of long term illness that precedes death. And um, that's a difficult journey in itself that involves lots of negotiation and subtle changes in identities and roles and um, very often a shrinking of your own social support group over time. And so where the, the deceased had died as a result of long term illness, um, very often there was um, in these interviews with this category of people, there was a feeling that they actually didn't want a funeral because um, and it's very sad, but I can see how it happens, um, how they felt abandoned, really, by um, f close friends or wider family networks that hadn't been there to help them during the time of intense caregiving and support and all that emotional labour that goes around difficult things like long term illness. And um, so for them, they felt that the, uh, having a sort of a public funeral was a bit of a farce, really, where people might turn up to, you know, the idiom we use is to say pay their last respects, but they hadn't had, for whatever reason, turned up at the house to see the person, even though they were, you know, dying. They all, some, some people didn't want to do the performance side of it either. They didn't want yes. to be on show. Yes. Um, so they wanted to control who could attend. Yes. Um, because they were, I don't know, just tired or they didn't want to, they didn't feel like, or they didn't feel a need to to have to host almost this public gathering. But equally, there were the sad ones where, yeah, people just felt let down 
And so they felt it was uh, hypocritical of people to then turn up at the funeral. Um, and, and again, that links into previous research that Kate and I have done around the complexities of families and family dynamics and extended families and how those relations, when they get fractious, makes it difficult when it comes to making funeral arrangements and planning. And, and the third category we called consistency. So it was where people were rather than necessarily going with social obligations or social expectations, they were following through on their own uh, personal values and their and their beliefs. And um, and interestingly, uh, direct of the interviews we conducted that concerned a direct cremation, they represented people of faith and people of no faith. Um, and so of people who had quite strong faith for them it was um it was enough that the person who had died uh, was um to quote one person i interviewed you know with their lord um that they were finally at peace they were in heaven and the actual what happened to the body and the and the, the way we dealt with the the remains of of a person was sort of inconsequential to this bigger picture for them and I thought that was very interesting, uh, partly because of the history of a, a close relationship between funerals and, and, and religious institutions. Um, but then there was a, the other consistency in which I found um, some families just didn't like funerals. And it was well known that the deceased didn't like funerals and didn't want a funeral. And so, again, despite maybe acknowledging that there were others in the social network who would like to mark um, the passing of a particular person for the immediate family or those who were organising the funeral. Um, it was not something that they wanted. They wanted to avoid having a funeral. So direct cremation was also attractive for them. And then they could organise something if they wanted between themselves or a later date that replaced the funeral. Like um, we found people typically like to choose the one year anniversary of someone's um, death or on a birthday of the deceased. And that might be a time to bring people together. I That's think most of the people did something, didn't they? They, they, they yeah. wasn't, they were very, I don't think, I don't recall anyone or maybe one person. There was one person. But everyone else did something. And to me, that was, I, I thought, I, you know, I've, I've thought this for a long time, but that that there is so much more potential to do things with with ashes, especially, but that we put so much is pinned on that funeral of of the saying goodbye to the body, um, and and on that day. But actually, it's what happens after that that's really really important, um, and that and that's at least in the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant the wasps population there is there's a very limited social support network you know yeah. people don't live in these these kind of ideal communities anymore where people are in and out of each other's houses especially not in the pandemic but um, you know in and out of each other's houses or calling around and propping people up that just doesn't happen and actually if you could build in rituals or gatherings after the body has gone how wonderful that could be to to for people who are left to still feel supported and remembered 
and perhaps to talk about the person who's died but without when they've got a bit more energy perhaps because I think that's one of the other things that came out or, or I've seen in other things as well that's a lot of the time when someone's died that yeah, the fatigue is a huge factor yeah uh, for the people you know because of care or because of the build-up to the death so people are quite frankly knackered and that that's the not the best time really to be, then be having to engage with a lot of people having to do a lot of small talk having to to really actually look after other people because because you're hosting them at the funeral you give yourself six months or a year or when the weather's nicer and you can be outside or something that's a bit more relaxed and you've actually got the time to breathe around it and talking about time kate you've reminded me of the um those uh interviewees who also uh, the reason why they were drawn to direct cremation was because family were dotted all over the place, which is, uh, you know, particularly those families that are transnational. And so by actually just doing what you have to do with regards to dealing with the remains of the deceased, um, as you know, immediately following a death, but then giving relatives and friends time to organise their travel arrangements so that they can join you in, an, in a celebratory or memorial event at a later date. And I think, you know, it's subtle, but yes, it's maybe not so much it's important about saying goodbye and paying last respects to our body at the time. And really what what comes out of this work is the importance of the memory work and the shared memory work that goes on around someone's death. And that's why um, in a paper that we published uh, from this research, we said um, we took a quote from somebody who said in an interview that their memory of their time together with their relative was more important. And so it was like holding on to those memories and sharing those memories was the commemorative act rather than necessarily a physical gathering of people around the time of death. This is the nat natural extension of what's happened to weddings that you know, from, the, from the people who in the 1970s and the 1980s who changed the landscape of weddings, moving them away from a single, you know, one service and you've got to invite X, Y, Z, you've got to invite all these people that you don't know. Um, moving to much more um, creative uh, events that are that, that manage the legal side of it, the legal marriage or civil partnership. And then and then that more the more ritual side of the, the celebration of a union. That's now been separated for a lot of people um, with different people invited to different parts. They can even happen on different occasions. So this is the extension of it, you know, 40, 50 years later. Um, those people who change the landscape of weddings are going to be changing the landscape of funerals. And so by separating off the, the disposal of the body, which is the equivalent of the legal side of a, of a marriage or civil partnership, but you know, separating the disposal of that person from the ritual side, the memory work that Hannah was talking about, it was kind of, it's probably inevitable that that, that was going to happen. But I think that the, the There'll be there will be people who don't agree with that and don't want it to happen either. It's quite threatening um, for all sorts of reasons. We might come on to in a minute, but I don't know if you want to say anything about that first, Hannah. Yeah, I found uh, the 
people enjoyed the control of deciding how the whatever gathering or events they organized reflected what they perceived to be the identity of the dead person. Which is also so, me about being authentic. Yes, and being authentic to their memory. And so one that I really love was um, uh, a woman's husband had died after a long time of of, uh, of illness, um, but he'd been a pilot. And so they'd, she organised, uh, when, when she got the ashes back from the direct cremation, she organised a gathering of friends and family at his local flying club. And they um, strewed the ashes out, out of a plane and their people had champagne on the runway underneath. And that meant a lot to her because that was a group of people that were very involved in her husband's life. Um and so it's things like that, you know, you might not necessarily recognise that as a funeral, but it's definitely a memorial service that had a lot of meaning to all those people that are involved. And and then far more sort of, I mean, I would say that's quite a curated event, but then you would also have um, very intimate family gatherings where it was just on the first anniversary of date of death or, or um the deceased birthday family would get together and just go out for a meal and eat food that was um the deceased favorite type of food or a place where they used to all go together um or have a picnic even and plant a tree or do something with the ashes on the one year anniversary and that was the sort of significant moment and the you know the official memory work as i call it so there's all sorts of things that people can do and i and i think the great thing about that is it accommodates where people live and you know our geographical um distance from each other and and it and you can be as fancy as you like or or as informal as you like depending on on your own values and and money and resources and um and then other people just have a sort of gathering of neighbours and friends in their back garden in the summer months. And um, and that's an opportunity to share memories and, and do those things that we might recognise from a funeral, like writing in a memory book and bringing photographs and sharing stories. I imagine many would assume that saving on the expense of a funeral would be the main motivation for arranging a direct funeral. But it sounds like this might not be the case. Kate? I think I think we went into this thinking that money would be a bigger factor perhaps than it turned out to be. Yeah. But I think the problem is also and this is this is always going to be an issue when you're doing research on bereavement. It's we were reliant on who stuck their head above the parapet and volunteered to take part in the study. So it may be that people who were very you know, really financially struggling or very traumatized by what they'd been through and or, or felt that they'd had to do a direct cremation because they they couldn't afford anything else and they they were very resentful about that or very or very upset they wouldn't necessarily put themselves forward to take part in the project so and we are very aware of that we're not saying that this is the be all and end all but i think from the people we spoke to there was it was it was you know, screaming out at us that there's so much more going on than just money. So from my perspective as a sociologist, that gave me a lot of hope that often funerals are reduced to an issue of money. And they're not. There's there's all sorts of stuff going on in them. It's about how people relate to one another and about families and communities. And there's so much more to learn about them um, 
and and because often funerals are dismissed as a kind of niche area but actually they're hugely revealing about how people live their lives and and what they put stock in and um and that was, to me reading the transcripts that was just it was they were like how i said they were incredibly rich what has been the impact of the covid pandemic on direct funerals coming out of the pandemic um i would see that we're at a bit of a turning point so this was already happening before the pandemic and then the pandemic has happened where people have been uh, restricted in terms of what they can do for funerals so i think it's, it's slightly different because choice a lot of choice was taken away but i do think coming out of the pandemic and when those restrictions are lifted i i suspect we're at a crossroads where you know there will be back to, for a certain proportion of the population will be back to business as usual with a traditional funeral but for others they'll have seen that this exists now as an option and actually it was okay and actually we're able to do something a year later or six months later and actually that was quite nice and once that starts taking off and other people oh know of someone who that happened for and and that becomes a more you know we in academia we've got normalized you know normal sort of choice um because the people we were talking to we call them the vanguard you know that they were we were talking to them in 2018 so they so direct cremation was still relatively in its infancy in the mm. uk then and as, as a package to do and um now if it becomes more normal i think you know we're going to have quite a lot of diversity within funerals that, that didn't exist 10 years ago and and i think also that funeral i don't know what you think about this hannah but funeral directors are going to have to really up their game because i think can, people who are purchasing funerals are going to expect more and more um in terms of being a consumer you know what do they get for the money that they're spending so before the pandemic, direct cremation accounted for three to six percent of all cremation funerals. And then um, during the pandemic, that rose to 14 percent. That equates to about 100,000 people. That's right. In 2020, at least. The changes your study has highlighted in funeral and cremation habits, are these going to stick around? I really do think rituals around death are going to change. Um, and because also the, li the, the literature, uh, the psychological literature anyway, the, 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 there is more, more work now being done on meaning and authenticity. And Hannah, you know, we talked about that earlier, the authenticity, people, people trying to find meaning in how people have died and the circumstances and what happens next um, when they're, when they're you know, facing that loss. And within that context, I think people are going to start wanting to create activities that have meaning for them and are not going to just be pushed into this is what everyone else does or this is the easiest thing to do. I, th I think another big change that we haven't talked about in this podcast, but I'm very aware of, is the threat, I suppose, that when when talking about direct cremation and talking about the absence of a funeral, that's a real threat to a whole professional group of people who've been offering their services to curate rituals and hold a space for people to acknowledge their loss. And 
at the moment in the funeral industry, when we talk about the funeral industry, Kate and I don't just mean funeral directors. We're talking about everybody that works in, in the in the death care work world. So that also includes civil celebrants who um, who might preside over a funeral or it could involve a, a religious person figure like a vicar or a priest. And so they're all going to have to feel their way into perhaps new roles or or, or diverging in some way um, if there's a groundswell of people who perhaps choose to not have a funeral and do something else. And, and so that's a bit of a threat for that group um, of, of those professionals. You know, they 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 firmly believe and they find value in their work that rituals are important, i.e. the funeral is an important moment that people should engage with. But the challenge is through this research, we've also found that meaning and what should and shouldn't be engaged with varies between people.